It's a picture of a chicken that plays tic-tac-toe. A few years ago, there was a a case of some tic-tac-toe playing chickens being stolen. And uh, the newspaper article read this way, it could be a case of foul play for... For three chickens that travel the country's state fair circuit, give it to me here, please, thank you, travel the state fair circuit playing tic-tac-toe against humans for 25 cents a game. Tic-tac-toe, educated poultry, whose owners say they have never been beaten by a human have been missing for a week and a half after they were apparently removed from their cages. We haven't seen so much as a feather of them. This fellow had three chickens that played tic-tac-toe, and the best anybody could ever do was tie them. They had some second-string chickens. Uh, Maybe it was the second-string chickens that could be tied. I've seen a chicken beat somebody 25 games in a row. (laughs) If a chicken can laugh, they really think this is funny. <laughs> chicken, a chicken with a, si- with a brain the size of a pea, literally, could beat you at tic-tac-toe. <laughs> In case you didn't know it, chickens don't naturally play tic-tac-toe. <laughs> but through training and repetition... Their little pea-sized brains can produce the ability to win this game. And in case you didn't know it, Christians don't naturally think right. That's really one of our great problems, is we assume that the way we think is right. And the scripture says otherwise. Our minds need training to enable us to live in the strength of Christ And we started looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, We've we've looked at it, and we're going to continue here in this section that starts to talk about our minds and what we think. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Remind them of these things. Which things? The things that have just been spoken. We could go back to verse 11 in particular. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure and so on, it talks about the person of Christ. We could really go back to the, the whole first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter when Paul gives so much great truth. And then he comes to verse 14 and he says, Now, Timothy, what you have to do is remind people about the truth. Paul knows because he knows himself that we don't remember things perfectly all the time. We need to be reminded. And he says, in particular, as you remind them about these things, charge them before the Lord not to. Here's something not to think about, not to work at, not to strive about words, which results in no profit and comes to the ruin of the hearers. But in contrast to that, be diligent. To present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 14 talks about um, what I have chosen to call the theology of human curiosity. Verse 15 talks about true theology, God's truth. 
And the point that we need to understand about our minds and our thinkings in verse 14 is that our human curiosity often drives us to think about things that God has chosen not to talk about. And because of that, human curiosity creates unfounded theology. Here is a simplistic and yet fairly accurate, fairly complete definition of how to interpret the Bible. If the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. The vast majority of the Bible is quite plainly written and easily understood, although much of it, a good portion of it, is hard to accept. But there's a difference between acceptance or or belief and approval and understanding. God's word is plain and simple. And yet, many people, because they don't accept the word, take the words of the word and twist them and turn them to try to make some sense that pleases them. In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote this, If anybody teaches otherwise other than the plain truth of God and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud. You know, if you don't submit to God, that is the ultimate definition of pride. I mean, the God who created the universe... He's the one that wrote this book. And if we, as part of that creation, look up to heaven and say, I don't like what you wrote, I'm going to write something different. That's the ultimate pride. He is proud, knowing nothing, but he's obsessed with disputes. My mom used to say when I was a kid, you should be a lawyer when you get older. And it wasn't really a compliment. (laughs) Thankfully, I've learned to argue based on the Scripture, not based on my own ideas. He's talking here about people who are obsessed with arguing over ideas that they have created, ways that they have twisted God's truth. He is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, and suspicions. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such people you should withdraw yourself. The Apostle Paul is talking about words that have no value. They have, uh, in fact, in contrast to having some value, they have a hurtful value. And he's talking in the realm of doctrine, of God's truth. And so I would offer you an example of a man who is well known, not to you, but in theological circles. And uh, I quote from a book called Four Views on Salvation in a Pluralistic World. And just to summarize the book, I would essentially say one view is pretty much what we understand the Scripture to say, and the other three are variations starting with this fellow here, and you'll see what the variation is. And the whole point is, what is the pluralism of our our society and the world society pressing people toward in their ideas about salvation? And here's one fellow's words. Um, I do not think 
that it is possible to settle theological issues with, quote, the Bible says, unquote. The Bible is a collection of documents written during a period of about a thousand years by different people in different historical and cultural situations. The writings are of many kinds, including court documents, heavily edited slanted history, and I suppose he would know because he was there, prophetic utterances, hymns, letters, diary fragments, memories of the historical Jesus, faith-created pictures of his religious significance, apocalyptic visions, etc., The human authorship and historical setting must always be taken into account using the scriptures. And the net result of all that that I just read is that first sentence for him. It is not possible to settle a theological issue by saying, the Bible says. And so he goes from there. And he essentially comes up with a view that says, everybody's going to the same place, just on different paths. It's the same old stuff written in a fancy, academic way. He has taken the words of Scripture and said, I don't like them, I can't see them, and so he's twisted and turned them to suit himself. Don't strive about words to no profit. The truth of Scripture is easily understood. And yet, not only do people who... This fellow essentially seems to be an unbeliever, and he's arguing for a universal kind of salvation, but even Christians get wrapped up in arguments that the Scripture doesn't talk about. When I was ordained, and if you don't know what that involves in our circle, part of a big part of it is a doctrinal examination, which means a group of pastors come together and they ask you questions, as we like to say, that even angels can't answer sometimes. They want to see what you believe, they want to see how you handle yourself answering those questions and all of that. So I'm answering questions, you know, we have a, I had a prepared doctrinal statement going along. And we're in the section on sin and salvation. And a fellow says, are you ultralapsarian or supralapsarian? Well, what are you? And I went, you know, brother, I, I've heard those words. But right now I don't have a clue what they mean. And I, that was the truth. Well, that was all I could say. And and then he gave me a clue, which is something we also do in ordination. Sometimes if a guy doesn't get the question, you'll say, well, you know, here's a factor. You don't want to tell him the answer, you know, because you want him to answer it. And so he says to me, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, what he meant was, in God's divine decree, did God know and create salvation before or after sin in his mind? Okay? So all he had to say to me was, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And, I, and then I thought, okay, I know what you're talking about. And so I said, well, brother, I don't believe the Bible speaks to that, so I don't have a position on that issue. And the, the moderator, for those of you who know George Cox, you'll appreciate this. He says, well, brother, maybe you could tell us what you think. And here's what you got to understand. This is the scariest words anybody can ever say. He said, I agree the Bible doesn't speak to it, but I just think. That is a person who strives about words to no profit. 
There's important stuff in God's Word. And the stuff that isn't, important, or isn't in there isn't important for us. Might there be answers to some of your obscure questions when you get to heaven? There might be. Should you spend any time on them now? No. God says, don't waste your time. Either your beliefs come out of this book plain and simple, or your beliefs are the product of human curiosity. Just because you can think of something and discuss it doesn't mean you should. Titus 3, Paul wrote this, Avoid foolish disputes. Avoid genealogies uh, for them. And now he's not saying don't make a family tree and see where your family came from. He's talking about a whole spiritual doctrinal thing that people put together with genealogies. That's a goofy thing. Avoid contentions. Avoid strivings about the law. For they're unprofitable. And they're useless. Several years ago, I preached as I am today. And I went back there to shake hands. And the first people right on me had Bibles about that thick. Two of them had exactly the same book. And immediately he was questioning, one of these fellows was questioning me about words in the text and what my translation said and his translation said. It took me about, took me about three minutes to figure out he was headed to argue with me about Bible translations. And I, I could tell what his position was going to be. And I could tell that he was a person who strove about words. And so I just stopped. I said, I'm not going to have this discussion. Those of you who are in my Sunday school class, you know that if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer, right? Right? Yeah. And I'm going to go to the Bible. But if you ask me something that has no value and is not in the Bible, I'm going to say, I have no position on that. And I'm going to walk away. And I said, I'm sorry, brother, this, this thing doesn't, I'm, this discussion is over. Why? I said, because there's no value in it. And I just walked away. Avoid foolish disputes. Now, make no mistake, there can be times where debate is valuable. God isn't instructing us to avoid debate. Rather, we are being commanded to make sure that our debates are about things that matter, as defined by God. That's where we should be spending our time. There's so much bad doctrine in the world that does need to be confronted, but it's plain and simple from God's Word. We don't need to waste our time on the foolish discussions. Number two... As we think about human curiosity that creates unfounded theology, we need to understand this. Unfounded theology yields hurt. Look again at verse 14 of 2 Timothy 2. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive to words, to no profit. There's no value in it because it comes to the ruin of the hearers. The word ruin here, in the Greek, comes into our English word as catastrophe. He says this is a spiritual catastrophe to waste time arguing about words and ideas that God has not put in the Scripture. The word catastrophe in Greek literally means to turn something upside down. 
And so I want to think with you for a minute, what is a spiritual catastrophe? Well, let's go back a couple hundred years or so in the history of our country and think of a spiritual catastrophe that had to do with the ways that people thought about African Americans. There was a spiritual catastrophe. If if you're not aware of it, there were people who used the Bible to, to try to prove certain ideas about what African Americans were and where they came from and how they should be treated. And the result was a justification for slavery. And the result of that was another catastrophe, which unfortunately, I guess, had to be fought in order to right the ship that had been turned over, and we call it the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people died to fix something that was in part justified by bad theology. Let's, uh, let's move forward to this contemporary era and think about another set of empty words that are loosely based on the scripture. It's a little doctrine that goes like this. You can't love others until you love yourself. It's based... It's based... On the words of Christ, when Christ said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so some people who read the secular doctrine of self-esteem and self-love looked at this verse and said, oh, Jesus is saying, love yourself, and then after you really love yourself, you'll be able to love your neighbor. Now, I'll give you the fact that you might be able to read that in there, but I think the plain reading is simply this. What place do you normally give yourself? You normally give yourself first place. When you go to the grocery store and you're trying to pick which line to go in, do you go in the longest one? And then when that person in front of you, there was only one person in front of you, and they're writing a check. Oh, my goodness. Come on into the modern age. Right? See, do you normally enjoy putting yourself back? No. We normally love ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, it's natural to you to love yourself. Now, give your neighbor that spot. So when, you know, I suppose you could say, when you're right there in line and somebody comes up behind you, as people have done to me in Costco, maybe I've just got one item, I know. I go to Costco and buy one item. What's wrong with me? But I'm a selective shopper. I guess that makes me good, right? And they'll say, hey, you come ahead of me. I've got a whole bunch of stuff. That's what that verse is teaching. But people have wanted to justify themselves, and so they say, I have to love myself. And I'll tell you how that comes to hurt. It comes into my office when people sit in front of me and say, I just know God wants me to be happy. That's why I'm going to leave my spouse. Really? That's what that verse says? Make no mistake, folks. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And God calls it a catastrophe. The greatest catastrophe of modern doctrine, of course, is the ideas that are all around us that lead people to hell. And one of those ideas is this concept of pluralism. And pluralism is essentially a thought that says 
Anybody who would stand up and say there is one absolute truth is absolutely wrong. And so people have applied that to the Bible, and, and fellows like the first two who wrote in this book out of four writers have essentially tried to accommodate that idea into God's truth. And you can't do it because, unfortunately, Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the tr- the way, the life, the truth. No man comes to the Father but by me. Christianity is not a pluralistic faith. And so, in our modern world, people have tried to change that. Let me give you a really prime example of hurt coming from being focused on an argument about words. The people who came in here to argue with me, in fact, what they told me was they were going to every church in the county to argue with them about this position. That was their goal. That was their plan. And they'd been to a number of churches already. I found out a couple of years after they were here, through first-hand discussion, that they were living in sin of the sort that breaks up families. While they were arguing with me about a position that has no impact on godliness. And I think, really? You, 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 and, and why does that happen? It happens because if we spend all of our time focusing on some humanly derived issue, we become experts in that issue, but we leave behind the rest of God's truth, which is meant to grow us up and mature us and prepare us for what's coming. You want to be a strong believer, a maturing Christian? Reject the doctrine that comes from men's thinking and instead... Do what verse 15 says. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God's truth will result in God's approval in your life. I love the song that Raul and Steffi sang and the worship team played. Um, Jesus, this is my reward to, to hear you say, well done. Boy, I was just thinking about that while they were playing and thinking, is that what I'm working toward? This verse says, if we handle the word of God rightly, that will be the result in our life. If you don't know about Awana clubs, this verse is their key verse. This is what the whole club is built on, and it was started uh, back in the days of a different Bible translation being the majority translation. And so it says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the key idea of our Awana Club. We need to get God's word to kids so they'll get saved and so they'll grow up and love the Lord. This verse instructs us to be diligent with God's word. To be diligent. How does a person act when they care about their grade in a class? School's going to be starting for you Ferndale folks uh, this week. Some of you are homeschooled. Question, how do you act when you care about the grade? See, many people in school don't care. One time in fourth grade, teacher gave us an assignment, and I thought it was a stupid assignment. 
It was a think-and-do workbook page, and it was like, oh, we already know this. Why do we waste our time? So I went, all the way down the page. And my parents said, oh, that's just all right, Dave. You don't have to do anything. Your teacher says, yeah. And the teacher said, oh, Dave, you're so smart. You don't need to worry about that. No, if you care about getting a grade, you act one way. If you don't care, you act another way. People who care about learning the material, they make sure they know what is expected. What's expected of me. They use their planning tool, their daytime or their calendar, their whatever it is, to plan the work. They create time to study. They make homework a priority. And how does a person act when they don't care? They act any way they feel at any given moment. So God says, do you care about getting the grade from God? Do you care that someday you will stand before God and God will evaluate your life and reward you based on that? That's what 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. Also 2 Corinthians 5. Do you care what will happen on that day? Do you want to go there and get an A? And the A seems to be summarized to us in Christ's words, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you care what grade you will get? I know I've shared this with you before, but I share it again because it just epitomizes to me this verse. Great old missionary who's with the Lord now, John Schlenner, who, who the, uh, uh, Pastor Ralph and Margie worked with down in Brazil. He was in, into his 80s, I believe, when I, I called him on the phone. I wanted him to, to, to share with us in a certain ministry. And I, I wasn't sure if he was up to it or not. And so I greeted him and I said, what are you doing these days? Okay, he, he's an 80-plus-year-old man who lives out in the boondocks in Idaho in retirement. I said, what are you doing these days? And he said, I'm studying for finals. Humanly speaking, we're tempted to say, hey, here's an 80-plus-year-old fella who served the Lord diligently. Does he need to keep working at it? Well, if you care what grade you get, the answer is yes. Yes. He says, listen, be diligent in the word of God because the potential is for you to get a well done from God someday. I wasn't, I wasn't a great tennis player in high school. I enjoyed the sport. I lost every match in two years of varsity play except one. And it was the one when we played our cross-town rival. And I played a kid that I'd gone to fifth grade with. And I beat him in overtime, in sudden death. And when we got to the award ceremony where the coach gave out the, the varsity letters and the awards, he said this, Lunsford came through for us in the clutch. Translate that, he didn't do very much for us the rest of the time. <laughs> but he came through in the clutch. Man, I remember that like it was yesterday and it was a lot of years ago. Man, that made me feel good. Can you imagine what you'll feel like when you stand before God and he says, you came through for us. If you're hoping to hear God say, well done, 
then you need to be knowing this book and living this book. And the thing that we need to to understand is this. Understanding God's truth requires effort. That's why he says, be diligent. And then he uses this phrase that's a little bit obscure to us. He says, rightly dividing. It it almost sounds counterintuitive. Dividing the word of God, what are we going to do? Section it up into pieces? The Greek phrase literally means cut a straight line. Now, he's not talking about cutting the word up. He's talking about craftsmanship. Craftsmanship. Can you imagine in the days of the Bible? I mean, think back. I mean, I know the pyramids were built well before the time of the Bible, but technology hadn't advanced much from the pyramids till the time of Christ. You know, and you, can you get that mental image of the pyramids, these great big stone uh, uh, buildings, you know, stacked up to the sky with these huge stones, and you think, how'd they cut those things? And how did they cut them straight? And how did they lay it straight? You know, when you build a skyscraper these days, there is a fella who will take a point, you know, like, like let's say you're in Seattle, you're on one hill, and the skyscraper is over there, and it's going to be 50, 60 stories, And the guy is a surveyor, and every day he surveys, he surveys, he surveys, because they know that after they build that so high, it's literally going to sink into the ground a certain amount. And they understand that, and so the guy is surveying every day, every day, every day, and they wait for that that movement to happen before they put the exterior cladding on the building, because if they put it on first, it will ruin it. And you think of, and we think, wow, isn't that marvelous technology? Yeah, how did they build the pyramids? How did they get that done? That's the craftsmanship that's being spoken of here in 2 Timothy 2.15. Cut a straight line. Be a craftsman with the word of God. Not a, not an apprentice, not a hacker, not a wannabe. Be a craftsman. At some point in our remodeling in our house, we needed to put in a new dishwasher. In those days, we only had one plumber in the church, and it was Ben Hughes. And, uh, you know, I know how to plumb, and I know how to do electrical, and I know how to do carpentry, I know how to do sheetrock, I know how to do all this stuff. But I thought, you know, if, if Ben Hughes will come and help me, that would be better. So, so Ben Hughes came over. And you know the difference between a plumber and a hacker? <laughs> the plumber hooks it up, and it doesn't leak. I hook it up, and then I fix it right away. And I fix it some more, and I pray, oh, dear Jesus, please, please don't let it leak. Ben Hughes said to me after he got that done, he said, you stick to preaching and I'll do the plumbing. (laughs) God says, are you a craftsman or a hacker with the word of God? You need to be a craftsman. It is possible to understand the word of God. Now, I I know we're talking about an infinite God, and I know we're talking about some truths that are harder to understand than others, but how will you ever know how much you can understand if you don't get in and try? 
That's why I do this every Sunday. And that's why I study before I do this. Because I want to speak the truth. You know, one of the things that they teach preachers is, a lot of the stuff you do in your study shouldn't come out here. Once in a while, I'll talk to you about a Greek word, or I'll talk to you about this or that, you know, kind of underlying supporting material. But mostly what we're doing is saying, this is what God's word means, and, and this is how you should live it out. And, 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 but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to go on so I can be a craftsman. I don't want to be a hacker. I don't want to come down from here and somebody come up and say, Oh, Pastor Dave, did you ever think about this verse? And it totally blows away everything I was saying. I don't want that to happen. Because God's word creates profit in lives. Man's word creates ruin. Are you a craftsman with God's word? It does take effort. What does the diligent student of the word look like? It looks like somebody who reads the word regularly. He reads with a plan to read it all, not just the parts that he likes. He plans to learn from those who are already mature in the Word. I'm going to, Sue and I are going to our pastors and wives retreat this week. And this year, unlike most years, we're having all of our own speakers. So there's, there's going to be four other guys. Sue and I are going to share a session with the men and the women. But in those four other sessions, I'm looking forward to sitting under those men who are mature in the Lord. And I'm looking forward to learning. We've got to be learners from those who are more mature, who are more learned. Do you understand? There's not a trick here. Please get this right. I do not ever want you to think that you can only learn the Word of God from me. That would be the most wicked thing you could do. That will cause ruin in your life. But I do want you to understand this. Jesus not only started Christianity by his death, burial, and resurrection, but gave the truth to the apostles. The apostles taught other people, like Timothy. Timothy taught other people, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I was taught by some wonderful godly men, and I hope that I'm passing God's truth on in purity and simplicity. And so, yes, you should be learning from those who are more mature, not just me, but from many. And when a diligent worker in the Word doesn't know what to do in life, what does he do? He turns to the Word and he searches for answers. And most importantly, he puts to use what he has learned every day. Look at this from Hebrews. For though by this time, the author is writing to a a congregation like you, By this time, you ought to be teachers of God's Word. You ought to be, but you still need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk, the easy stuff in God's Word, not solid food. Why? For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the Word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who, by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In in a police agency that I served many years ago, a fellow transferred in from a faraway place. He had 10 years of experience. And after he worked for us a while, the chief said to me, he didn't have 10 years of experience. He had one year of experience that he repeated 10 times. 
That's exactly what God is talking about here. He said there are some Christians who have one year of experience. They know the doctrine of salvation enough to get saved. They know a little bit about prayer. They know a little bit about worship. They know a little bit about service. And they repeat that every year of their life. And consequently, they can be an old baby. God says, are you using, are you exercising your spiritual muscles based on God's word? It's a huge part of growth. You pick up a little piece of God's word every day and you say, God, help me to live this out today. And as you live it out, it, it becomes part of you and, and you know more of God's truth. And, and the more you learn, the, the more of a craftsman you are with the word of God. Well, I'm happy to report to you that I don't have bronchitis anymore. I have walking pneumonia. And uh, I learned that walking, they call it walking pneumonia because you don't feel bad enough to not be walking, but you don't feel that great either. And uh, the good news is uh, the doctor then gave me the correct antibiotic that would kill the germs that are causing what I have, not the incorrect antibiotic that I was getting before. God's word is the antidote to wrong thinking and wrong living. But it's more than an antidote. You see, because an antidote or an antibiotic like I have taken is something that cures you after the fact. God's word isn't just an antidote, it's a vaccine. Because as you appropriate God's truth and live it out every day, you are prepared for whatever comes in the days ahead. And so you are, you are vaccinated against sin. Not, not to say that there's no way it can happen. We all know that struggle. But you're prepared. God wants you to be strong. And it's going to come through your mind being strong in Him. Heavenly Father... Help us to be craftsmen with your word. Not just craftsmen who can talk about it, but craftsmen who live it. Help us, Father. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your spirit so we can understand, so we can live it out. I pray in Christ's name, amen.